So last night, you know, I, I didn't realize the snow was coming. And we were out late. We were out at the Ragbirds concert. So I don't know if you know Erin Zindel goes to our church. And so she was there. And Shelly Smith, who attends our church, was emceeing. And there were like six or eight more of you guys there. I saw the Wiles and um, the Lisas and some others. And it was really, really great. And we've been doing this as friends with Adam and Andrea and Rachel and I for many years. And every year at that concert, Erin always ends it with Mary Had a Baby. Right? And so I thought, well, gosh, it's just such an appropriate thing as we're here in Advent. And I thought, well, this morning, I think what I'll do is just start by telling you a little bit more about Mary's story. So Mary grew up in a time and a place of social discontent, you know, a time when there were ongoing riots against the government. Right? This isn't like the, the peaceful protests that we see going on at like Standing Rock or with Black Lives Matter. These were often violent and government retaliation against those Riots that were going on around Mary was equally violent. She lived in a time of popular unrest with social protests and a lot of suppression of those protests. And the unrest around her had gone on for decades before she was born, and it lasted for decades after her time had passed. When Mary's parents were growing up, we don't often think about Jesus having grandparents, and maybe he didn't know them. But these would have been Jesus' grandparents. When Mary's parents were growing up, the army came and invaded a town next to theirs, where people were protesting harsh treatment and high taxes. And the army came in and it destroyed the entire town. It like totally annihilated it. And it took thousands, in fact, some sources say tens of thousands, of people as slaves. It would be like if the army came in and destroyed like Chelsea. Sorry, Adam. Adam teaches there <laughs> as one of the coaches. So Mary would have absorbed stories like these from her parents and from her community. This is a community of traumatized people. And Mary had her own stories. When she was about 10 years old, she was about the age of, of the Sagita twins who are up here. I think Austin and Aiden just had a birthday a couple of weeks ago. The people in her town and in the hills around the surrounding cities, they took up arms again. And they knew that they didn't have the military power to overthrow the government, the government of one of the, the strongest empires that the world has ever known. But in desperation, like as a cry begging their oppressors to see their humanity, they demonstrated, and they fought, and they demanded to be heard. And as we would expect, the imperial army swept through the region, and they burned down homes and businesses, and they scoured the area for revolutionaries. And when they found them, they crucified them. And they would hang them to die a slow death of suffocation. In fact, on one day alone, more than 2,000 people were crucified. So probably it was about three to five years after this happened, Right, this last military sweep where thousands upon thousands of people were killed, that Mary finds herself pregnant with Jesus. And like many Jewish women under Roman occupation, she intimately understood systems of oppression. Right, she understood injustice. She likely knew people who had been brutally killed or tortured. She understood what it meant to be at the bottom of the social ladder. Right, she was Jewish in Roman-occupied territory. She wasn't rich. She probably wasn't super poor either, but she was engaged to be married to a carpenter, which is a pretty humble vocation. She's young, she's female, no doubt socialized to not think too highly of herself, and taught to have heightened awareness of her surroundings in such a time. So one day, while Mary was in her village in Nazareth, an angel came to her. And we don't know the exact setting in which this happened. I was trying to picture it, and I thought, you know, a lot of the homes in Nazareth at that time, they were pretty small, sometimes just two rooms, and they would share these rooms with many people within their family. So I thought, gosh, could she have been home alone? That's possible. 
maybe taking a walk, we don't know. But what we're told is that the angel Gabriel, he came to her and he said, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. We know the story. It says Mary was greatly troubled and she wondered what kind of greeting this was. So she's perplexed and bothered and bewildered. I almost said bewitched, bothered and bewildered, but it seemed a little off. And she's afraid. Right? We knew that she was scared because the angel's next words were, be not afraid. You found favor with God. But if we look at it from Mary's point of view, it's like, okay, well, what does this guy want with me? She's probably scared because she's by herself with this strange man. She may not have even been sure he was an angel at that point, at least not at first. And so I can just imagine her pulse raising, her, her fight-or-flight instincts kicking into gear, right? She's probably 13 to 15 years old, a young woman. And so if you're her, you're thinking, like, how can I get out of this situation if I need to? But although the angel tells her not to be afraid, he goes on to tell her something absolutely terrifying. He tells her that she's going to conceive a child and give birth to a son who she'll name Jesus. And that this Jesus is going to be a great man and he's going to go and he's going to take the throne of his ancestor, King David, and he's going to reign over a never-ending kingdom. And Mary says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel says to her, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And the Holy One who is born to you will be called the Son of God. And then the angel gives her a sign. Right? He gives her a piece of verifiable evidence so that she can test whatever it is he's saying, whether it's true or not. Right? He tells her that her relative, Elizabeth, who lives about a four to six day walk from her home, is six months pregnant. And so Mary's like, all right, I'm the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. So I had a little discussion with the staff this last Wednesday about whether or not Mary was actually able to give consent. It's an interesting thing. It had been bothering me, thinking about, say, a 14-year-old girl being told that she would carry a baby without intending to do so. Like, God was just like, okay, well, whether you like it or not, my spirit's going to overshadow you, whatever that means, and you're going to be pregnant, and you're going to give birth to a boy, and you're going to name him Jesus. And then there's the weight of all of the implications of being pregnant outside of marriage and her time and in her culture, especially if her fiancé, Joseph, isn't the father. Right? This could have thrown Mary to the sidelines for the rest of her life. Either she'd be living with her parents in disgrace, raising a, a mamzer, which is like a bastard child, maybe not able to marry somebody reputable and fully take part in the religious and cultural systems of her day. Worst case scenario, she could be stoned. She could be stoned to death. And so for me, this is an important question. You know, what's God doing to this young woman? Does she have a say in what happens to her? And my mind kept going back to what we talked about last Sunday. And we were talking about the prophet Isaiah and how God came to him and said, who will go for me? Whom shall I send? Right? He asked him and it gave Isaiah an opportunity to say whether or not he wanted to take part in being a witness to what and who God is. And I thought, okay, surely this God that I know and love would give Mary the same opportunity. And so after some good heated discussion within the staff, we've got such a great staff, I think we landed on Mary's reply of, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled as being like consent. That if she had actually responded differently to God, maybe history would have worked out in a different way. Like God would have gone to plan B. But even still, you know, the power dynamics in the story are interesting if you take them at face value. And so I just want to say, like, I would be curious to know some of your thoughts about it. If you're somebody who's kind of churned over that story, as I know like Cassie was like, I've thought of that too. 
And if you want to email them to me, I would be happy to be in, a, in dialogue because I think it's good practice for us to be bothered by Scripture, you know, to really wrestle with it and to ask questions and then to ask other people who you know are following Jesus as well so that we can think about who Jesus is and his character and how that relates to it and see if the Holy Spirit will tell us anything about it. Because when I really ponder this scene, I think Mary had a lot at stake and I have questions. I mean, it's no wonder she was terrified. Right, her reputation, her body, and perhaps her life were on the line. So, right, so immediately after this encounter that she had with this angel, Mary does what I think any rational person would do. She makes plans to go and see her cousin Elizabeth. She wanted to find out if that one verifiable piece of evidence in the angel's declaration is true. Because if it is, then she can allow herself to maybe fully embrace the promise that he had given to her. And so the story tells us that Mary hurried she hurried down to the hill town in Judea where Elizabeth lived. And it says she hurried as fast as she could. So it took her maybe three or four days. And cousin Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah, he was a priest in the temple in Jerusalem. And most of the priests who worked in the temple at that time, they actually kept their family homes out in Judea, most of them in Jericho. So it's likely that that's about the area where Mary was traveling. So she had some walking days to start to digest all that was happening and all that she had been told. And I can imagine Mary during that time vacillating between hope and fear, trying to come to terms with the reality of her situation and all that that could mean, of having to depend on God, of having to trust that her fiancé, Joseph, would believe her when he found out. I mean, what if he didn't believe her? We know from the story that he very nearly called off the engagement, which would have been a sensible response but he had a dream, and so he didn't. But in the midst of all of this fear that she has about the very real possibilities laid out before her, her hope must have also have grown, right? Hope that the angel, what he had said to her was true and that the child that she would carry would be the desire of nations that was prophesied so long ago. And so when she arrived in Jericho or thereabouts, she went to her cousin's home, and it said that when her cousin saw her, the six-month-old baby in her womb jumped it leapt. And Mary, seeing that Elizabeth was pregnant, as the angel had said, she was able to totally embrace the reality of the message that was given to her. And that burst joy inside of her heart, and she came out in song. And so this is the text from today. We've been preaching from the lectionary, which is not our normal practice, but just for Advent. And so the text today is from Luke chapter 1, 46 to 56. It's Mary's song. It says, And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he's been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He's performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, and he has sent the rich away uh, empty. He helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. And Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months, and then she returned home. So this song of Mary's, it's sometimes called the Magnificat, for those of you who came especially from a Catholic tradition, it's really one of the most prophetic and profound pieces of Scripture. Right, we have a, a popular song Right, Mary, did you know? Come on, you all know it, right? You've all seen the Pentatonics video, right? It's beautiful. Mary, did you know? Yeah, she knew. Yeah, but that's the thing. I'm like, yeah, 
she definitely knew. <laughs> she clearly knew full well the implications of what were happening to her. She knew the pickle that she was in personally. She understood all of the moving parts that could affect her future. And she also understood the promise that God was giving to her and to her people. Mary, did you know? Yeah. And this song of hers in scripture, it marks a turning point for her. You know, there's a pastor who I know who likes to say, God's first move is always identity. God's first move is always identity. Meaning that when we take steps forward on a Jesus path, the first move that God makes is to transform our identity. He transforms how we see ourselves. And so the angel told Mary twice that she was highly favored with God. But in her humble state, beaten down by the systems of the world and what she had absorbed about her worth as a human being, she was confused and she wondered how she could be the person that the angel was speaking to. You know, she's just like, who, me? Like, how can this be? In fact, I, I think she still didn't quite believe it was true that she was highly favored until she saw Elizabeth pregnant. But now her song, it shows transformation, right, of embracing her worth through the eyes of God. She says, for he's been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. So we see her identity transformed from worthless to blessed and loved so much by God that God will do great things for her. And that in spite of her humble state, her utter, utter lack of privilege in her culture, that God was working through her, quietly subverting power systems in the world, weaving her into this cadre of witnesses who have walked this earth, testifying to a God who is love, who loves us, who values us, and who wants to use us in our lives to testify to something greater than ourselves. And that is so like God. To use somebody with so little power to confront and confound powerful systems. Right? You think of like the Sioux Nation in North Dakota. We also see the transformation of Mary's hope for her people. Right? She comes from a place where people who push against power are killed and their lives and their homes are destroyed. But now she has hope that God is working in this ugliness to turn injustices upside down. She says, he's brought down rulers from their thrones, but he's lifted up the humble. That's revolutionary talk. He's filled the hungry with good things, but he sent the rich away empty. Mary's found her voice. She knows the political situation, right? She knows the despair. She knows all of the complexities. She knows it might take a long time to change. But at this point, she's able to imagine a long-term future in the midst of this despair. She's able to hope for something more. And I love this quote from Dr. Serene Jones. She's at Union Seminary. She says, one cannot have great hope without simultaneously bearing great grief. Oh, that we can understand the truth of that. One cannot have great hope without simultaneously bearing great grief. And Mary and her people, they knew grief. And as I meditated on this story this week, I found myself discovering a little bit of a familiarity with Mary's feelings. You know, I know many of us in this post-election season, as we're watching the news every day and we're seeing all the various government appointments, causes a little bit of anxiety. I know I speak at least for myself. When we're looking around us and we're looking ahead and it just seems like every day raises another red flag and we're seeing the oppression of the First Nations tribes, we're watching, well, this has always been true, but it's coming to light more, so many young black men being shot at alarming rates, we're seeing our African-American brothers and sisters, Hispanic brothers and sisters, gay brothers and sisters, Muslim brothers and sisters. 
becoming targets of hate speech and hate crimes. It's happened at the University of Michigan campus, it's happened at EMU. We sent a letter as a congregation last week to the Islamic Center of Ann Arbor because they received death threats. And there are so many other injustices that just seem to be heating up because it's like permission has been granted in our society for all of these racist, xenophobic, homophobic, misogynist voices to be given a microphone and legitimacy. It's revealing. It's revealing things that have been below the surface in our culture. And this is our reality right now. You know, Walter Brueggemann is one of my favorite theologians. And I know we've preached about him a couple of times this year, and we do it because he provides, I think, a really helpful framework for us in such a time as this. He talks about how we have to acknowledge our reality. That's the first step, right? That we have to name our fear. We have to name that we're perplexed and we don't know what to do. We have to name the injustices that happen, that that's the first step. And then we have to grieve them. And I think that's the stage that I'm at personally right now, the grieving stage, and I suspect that some of you are probably there too. But then there's one more stage, and that's hope. Right? He says, reality, grief, hope. That's actually the title of a book that he wrote that is well worth reading, Reality, Grief, Hope. And so that's the framework that I'm trying to operate out of in this season. And I found it to be helpful, not only for sort of thinking about our country in a big picture, but also for thinking about personal things. It's helped me in the past, but it's also helped me in different things going on in my life. When we can name the reality of whatever difficult situation we're in, we can grieve the losses of that situation. Then we can start to seek hope for an imagination of something better. You know, we can't rush the grieving, though, especially for people who have been really hurt and really oppressed. You know, they feel almost like re-traumatized. You say, but you should have hope. And I go, I can't even get to hope yet. I'm still in the grieving, but grieving, grieving is okay. Grieving is a healthy part of that stage. It's a part of getting to hope. You know, I keep thinking about, I've got something heavy on my mind this morning and that I've got a family member that's really going through a hard time in their marriage. And, you know, I know that it's hard to get to hope. It's hard to find that, to dig it up in the middle of chaos. So you sit in that space of naming and grieving, and then we pray that the hope will come. And like Mary, we do carry that seed of hope inside of us. I think whether we believe it or not, what the scripture is trying to tell us here is that it exists. You know, this is what we do in Advent. You know, we lit the candles this morning. Advent's a time where we talk about darkness. We talk about all of the darkness that's going around us in our culture, the different darknesses in our lives, and we sit in that place of grief. And then we practice finding hope. Right? That's what this month is about. We practice waiting for Jesus to burst through. We practice waiting for Jesus' coming. And when we do that, I think of like a dark room, and you go and you light a candle. And we know that when that happens, the darkness doesn't disappear completely. The darkness is still there, right? but the, the light isn't overcome by that darkness. And this is the, this is the message of Emmanuel, God with us. Right? When God entered into the nation, when he's entering into it right now, in our nation now, like the darkness doesn't necessarily go away. Like that's a hope that we have for the future, but the darkness doesn't necessarily go away. But what we're told is that he is present in that darkness that he is present with us as a seed in the womb. You know, that womb is dark. 
We talked about Isaiah last week, and Isaiah imagined the entire country of Israel cut down like a forest, and it's just stumps. All right, we talked about the one stump that he imagined was still alive that would have a shoot come out of it, right, that there's life that comes up from the death. And this is what we're practicing when we practice Advent. And when Mary's able to sort of embrace that idea, joy wells up in her. Right, she breaks out in song. And song is so important in times like this. Music is so powerful. Because what Brueggemann would say, he would say that the most creative people among us, our writers, our musicians, our artists, this is the time when God begins to stir in them because they're called to look through the darkness and ahead. They're the ones with the creative imaginations to see a world that could be and help bring us into that. You know, I was so excited to hear that Sharonda and Cassie were starting to work on writing some music. Like one of my hearts for Blue Ocean Faith as a whole is that music will start to bubble up out of this movement because I think that's a sign of the prophetic movement of God, that God starts to give us a vision for where it is that we're going. So in times like these, we look to the musicians and sometimes we can use music to bring hope into our own lives. And when my eyes aren't clouded by cynicism, I can start to see glimmers of this happening. And that's what I've been praying through Advent, is that God would open my eyes to see the good in the midst of the bad. That we can see people loving their neighbors as themselves and speaking out against the injustices. That God would highlight those to us to give us encouragement. Right, we say, come, Lord Jesus. We'll do two minutes of silence. So for those of you who might be visiting, we like to have, we either do a guided meditation or a couple of minutes of silence. Just say that it doesn't have to be completely silent. People, babies make noise. I'm not bothered by that. I'm going to do, it's going to be mostly silent, but I'm going to do a little bit of guiding. So just practice right now, just breathing. Get comfortable in your seat. Slow down. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You can use that as sort of a breathing rhythm if you'd like. I'd like us to imagine that we're in a dark room. It's a little scary because we can't see around us, we can't see what's ahead. But then we come upon a table that's almost like an altar. And on that altar are candles. to imagine just what do those candles look like in your mind? How many of them are there? Who or what do those candles represent for you? What is it that you're hoping for in this season? Who are you wanting to have hope for in this season? Just imagine yourself lighting those candles. And it doesn't have to be a symbol of hope that you already have. But you light them in your mind as practicing wanting hope. Seeking that hope. 
let me ask you, can you see Jesus at all in the room? I'm just going to be silent for about a minute, but I want you to pay attention where Jesus is, if he's doing anything at all, and if he's saying anything to you. Let's just give the Holy Spirit some room to, to sort of work on us. Come, Lord Jesus. Jesus, we thank you and we celebrate you as the light of the world. Bring hope and light to our Christmas season. Bring blessing on our families and our friends. And may we be witnesses of your love and your light in the world around us. Amen.